I'm Judy Cooper, and I'm the coordinator of public programs here at the Pratt Library, and we're really happy to see all of you today, and we're happy that it didn't snow or rain and keep you away. Um, our speaker this afternoon is, oh, let me just say one other thing. Um, our newsletter and flyers for programs that are coming up in March are on the table in the back, so please check those out on your, on your way out this afternoon. Um, Stephen Whitman, our special guest this afternoon, is an associate professor of history at Mount St. Mary's University over in Emmitsburg. And he writes on the history of slavery and emancipation in the 18th and 19th centuries. His first book, The Price of Freedom, focused on how enslaved people in Maryland gained freedom through manumission. It won the Maryland Historical Society's Book Prize in 1997. Come on in. Professor Whitman has worked as a historical consultant with the Maryland, Histori Maryland State Archives, the Maryland Historical Society, the Reginald Lewis Museum here in Baltimore, and as a member of the Maryland Humanities Council Speakers Bureau. Uh, in 2004, he held a Fulbright Fellowship uh, as a lecturer in American history at the University of Genoa. His new book, which he's here to talk to us about this afternoon, is Challenging Slavery in the Chesapeake, Black and White Resistance to Human Bondage, 1775 to 1865. It offers a look at anti-slavery activity and its impact here in this region, and we're very happy to have you here, Dr. Whitman. Well, thanks very much. Uh, I'm just going to send a few of these uh, outlines around the room. It may be handy if you, some of you already have one, but if you uh, do, pass it on, and if you don't, please take one. <clears throat> it's probably appropriate before I begin to thank a few people. Uh, first of all, the Pratt Library and uh, Judy Cooper for creating this event, and in particular, uh, Johns Hopkins University Press and Robin Renison, who's here, who helped uh, arrange things and brought books that you folks can buy if you're so minded and all that good stuff. But maybe uh, most especially, I would just like to note that a lot of the things I'll be talking about today are a product of work that began, oh, as much as 15, 18 years ago when I was a graduate student at Hopkins, work that began here at the Enoch Pratt Free Library, working in the Maryland Room and in particular in African-American collections. They, they now have their own African-American room in the Lou Library. So it's a great opportunity to be back here and uh, sort of uh, pay tribute a little bit to an institution that uh, helped me a lot in, in my work and uh, helped me learn some of the things that we're going to talk about today. I hope what we can do here is proceed on a basis where you all feel free to put up a hand as I go along. Uh, I, I feel no need to give a 40 or 50 minute talk and have only questions at the end. I, I suspect we'll, uh, we'll do better if you can just sort of ask your question as it occurs to you and uh, I'll make it my business to sort of weave it all together by the time we get to the end of the hour somehow. So please feel free to do that. Uh, I started in the outline you see here, I've kind of proposed a couple questions to talk about. Uh, one of them is a pretty obvious one. How did 
how and what did black people and some white allies, what did they do to challenge slavery in this Chesapeake region? And when I say that, I mean broadly speaking, Maryland, Virginia, and Delaware, not, not just the area immediately around the bay, but those, those three states. Uh, and we'll talk a fair bit about that. And then the second question gets to uh, maybe whatever big claims a, a person can make about the historical significance of all this. We have this panoply of events that range anything from individuals who are caught in slavery running away to take their freedom to people who are already free uh, deciding they're going to do whatever they can to start their own church to somebody who's still in slavery bargaining with a master to be manumitted to people who've decided they're just not going to take it anymore and they're going to use violence to try to take their freedom. Uh, it's quite a lot of stories involving a lot of people over a 90 or 100 year period from the beginning of the American Revolution to the end of the American Civil War. Uh, can we make some kind of a claim or a statement about the larger historical significance of it? <clears throat> I'm going to do that at the outset. And then you can decide as we go along whether or not my claim makes sense to you. Here it goes. When the Civil War started in 1861, people throughout this region, that three-state region I'm describing, had to make up their minds what they were going to do. Were they going to stay in the Union? All three of these states are slaveholding states and, uh, in theory at least, might have joined the Confederacy. We know that in practice Maryland and Delaware stayed in the Union, and to the extent that men fought, most of the men in those two states fought for the Union. Virginia, which of course is the quintessential Confederate state, uh, it might be well to remember that those 55 counties west of the Blue Ridge did not want to secede and stayed in the Union and of course became the new state of West Virginia. So somehow when the Civil War arrives, we have a region here that is... Uh, it's not too much of a stretch to say it's kind of split down the middle. There are substantial numbers of people going in each direction in terms of loyalty to the Union or trying to join the new Confederacy. And I would put it to you that therein, that fact, that we can examine that fact that a whole lot of people decided to stay with the Union in some slaveholding states and say, quite possibly, the various challenges to slavery that were mounted in the preceding 80 or 90 years had something to do with that fact. If we scroll all the way back to 1775, to the outbreak of the American Revolution, the number one slave colony, they still were then, in the American uh, colonies, in terms of the number of slaves held and so forth, was Virginia, and number two was Maryland. That would change, of course, over time for a variety of reasons. But those two colonies were sort of the bedrock of that whole institution of slavery and all that went with it, you know, in terms of participation in the domestic slave trade down the years and so on and so forth. Somehow, what was the heartland, if you can call it that, of this dreadful institution, uh, substantial numbers of people in those regions had been won away from feeling by 1861 anyway. They had been won away from feeling that preservation of slavery and accordingly joining the Confederacy was going to be the, the crucial strategy for them. Uh, and what I would like to argue, and what I do argue in the book, is that 
over a long, slow period, that 90 years between the Revolution or 85 years between the Revolution and the Civil War, in to various degrees, African-Americans, or we might better say Africans who are on their way to becoming African-Americans in this country, uh, persuaded, let us say, persuaded white people in the Chesapeake region that it was possible to live in a world where a lot of black people were free and that that wouldn't necessarily mean the end of one's world, that you didn't have to have a world where the only way the races could relate was through white mastery and black slavery. Nowhere is that more true than where we are today here in Baltimore. In other words, Baltimore was the city uh, literally with the largest population of free people of color uh, in pretty much every census taken from 1790 to 1860. Uh, it's a growing number, a growing proportion of people. Just to give you a sense of it, Baltimore is a town of a little over 200,000 people in 1860 when the war breaks out. And about 26,000 of those people are free people of color. About 2,000 are slaves. More or less the reserve, reverse of the ratio that would have existed at the beginning of the period I'm talking about, where nearly all black people, whether they were in Baltimore or anywhere else in this region, were in slavery, and only a tiny proportion were free. So we have a people with tremendous difficulty and great resistance kind of transforming themselves into a substantially free people, especially in Baltimore, but more generally uh, in Maryland and Delaware. A majority of the black people in Maryland and Delaware collectively are free by 1860, a, a, a slender majority, let's say. So something big is going on. I'm not trying to claim here, just to, to stay with the claim again for the moment, I'm not trying to claim that this was some kind of paradise for free people of color. By no means. They were definitely discriminated against. They couldn't vote. Uh, they were taxed, but they couldn't send their people to schools. There was no, in other words, no public schooling for free people of color, and you know, other difficulties could certainly be named. But they had nonetheless begun to demonstrate that it was, again, possible to imagine living in a free society that included black people as a free component of that society. I think all this amounts to a great deal, because if you... Uh, if you can imagine a, a hypothetical, a sort of counterfactual situation, if you can imagine Maryland and Delaware and all of Virginia wholeheartedly joining in the secession cause, I think you would then also have to imagine uh, Mr. Lincoln and his supporters having a much harder time managing that situation to a successful restoration of the Union and nationwide end of slavery. So that's my big claim. I think what these folks did here in the late 18th and early and middle 19th century had some kind of long-range impact on the uh, way in which the country fought the Civil War and on the outcome of that war. Uh, let's look a little bit at some of the specifics, and maybe that will begin to, uh, <clears throat> you'll begin to sort of have questions you want to ask at that point. I've tried to sort of list what... Uh, you know, the various categories, the various ways in which a person uh, trapped in slavery might try to, try to deal with the situation. One of the earliest things that came out of the American Revolution, of course, was uh, some kind of theoretical interest or political question about the legitimacy of slavery. 
I don't think Thomas Jefferson or George Mason or George Washington, some of our most notable founders who, of course, all owned large numbers of slaves, I don't think they had any trouble reconciling themselves to the idea that you could have a free country in which some people were still slaves. It took a certain amount of, what shall we say, intellectual gymnastics to convince yourself that somehow black people were not really part of our society and therefore didn't need to partake of freedom, but they did that. But not everybody felt the same way. And some of the first people to raise the point, to say, hey, there's a, there's a paradox here. You know, you, you guys have just written this big document that says all men are created equal and fought a big war to uh, make that document mean something. And here we are with, <clears throat> at that time, six or 700,000 Africans enslaved. Some of the people protesting that and raising their voices literally in the streets are black people either free or in slavery as early as the 1770s and 1780s. And as soon as there is, how shall I put it, some real tests that can be tried, uh, we're going to see both white and black allies <clears throat> here in Maryland, for example, pressing for some kind of legislated end to slavery. They won't get it, but as early as the 1780s, the Maryland, the new Maryland state legislature, we're not the, not the colonial legislature anymore, they're going to be asked to consider gradual emancipation by, by compulsory legislation of slavery, uh, the end of the gradual ending of slavery in this state. Uh, the kind of people who will be pressing for that would be on the political level often uh, Quakers or in the very early days of their, uh, their organizational independence Methodists. And here too we can name plenty of people from Baltimore in terms of local interest. Uh, I was recently at an event celebrating the 259th birthday of Elisha Tyson, one of the great anti-slavery leaders in early Baltimore. Tyson's a Baltimore merchant and Quaker, and he's one of the folks organizing petition drives to try to convince the Maryland legislature to, uh, to do something about this situation. Another thing you could do, maybe you're not a white Quaker, maybe you're somebody who is, let's say, a... Uh, a black person in slavery is you can try to use the law to get yourself out of slavery. You can go into court the one occasion in which a slave has standing in a court of law and file a petition of freedom. In other words, you're going to try to develop an argument that you're wrongly held in slavery, legally. Several thousand people in Maryland became free that way between about 1785 and, and 1805. These are people who perhaps at some point are descended from a white woman, a white woman maybe who's an indentured servant who has a child by a black slave. The law would be crystal clear on this point. People like that are not slaves. You, you inherit the status of your mother. You cannot inherit slavery through your father. But slaveholders who want to hang on to people and who may have some control of events at the local level might be pretty good at, uh, in effect, uh, forcing that young child or that young child and her children into an actual life of slavery. I find it fascinating that these cases start coming to light as soon as America becomes independent. You have 
in effect, black people stepping up to the plate, risking some things, eh? Your owner is not going to like it when you file for a petition for freedom. You might get sold to Georgia or something like that. <clears throat> but coming forward and saying, this is my ancestry, I'm not, I'm not really legally a slave. We have people able to show that they're descended from Indians. They're able to show, in a few cases, that they're descended from people from, the, from South Asia, from, in other words, India or uh, Malaya in one case. None of these people are meant to be slaves. What these controversies do is, for openers, they challenge slavery by setting some people free, and they, by attracting a lot of public attention, force a lot of people to think about the larger question of the legitimacy of the whole institution. And so you have, even at the outset, these sort of individual challenges to my status as a slave that have at least some potential to stir people's thinking on a, on a larger basis. <clears throat> One thing that comes out of that is, uh, it's listed there, is the idea that in addition to these so-called freedom suits, <clears throat> you might, you just might be able to negotiate, if that's the right word, to somehow, in a very unequal sense, bargain with the person that by law is said to own you and bargain for your freedom. Uh, Maryland and Delaware, more than any two states in the Old South, <clears throat> saw many, many thousands of these manumissions, private acts granting somebody freedom, uh, transforming somebody from a piece of property into a, a self-owning human being. Uh, and I think those stories also have a connection, the ability of enslaved people to work their way out of slavery. In some cases, they are... Uh, making money in their spare time. Slaves actually do have some time that's available to them. And you can, in some cases, actually make enough money that you can buy your way out of slavery. <clears throat> One might ask, why would owners do this? Or why would you allow somebody to gain the extra money? And now I think we begin to see a connection, <clears throat> to another kind of connection between individual slave activity and resistance to slavery that can work on a master's mind, an owner's mind. If I come up to you and say, um, <clears throat> I'd like to buy my way out of slavery, uh, set a price on me, and somehow I'll earn that money in the next five or ten years. That's how a lot of these transactions actually worked out, in fact. This is somebody doing a second full-time job, in effect, in addition to whatever field labor or shop labor he's doing as a slave, he's finding a way to work an extra 20, 30, 40 hours a week to scrape together money. <clears throat> I might be a slave, but if I work for somebody besides my own owner, he's going to have to pay me to get me to do any work for him. I found people here in Baltimore working as many as 80, 90 hours a week. We've got the payroll records from an early chemical factory, if you can imagine such a thing. Uh, it's in the same part of town that has all the old like paint factories and chemical factories sort of over there on the south side of Federal Hill, you know, down towards the harbor. Uh, 1820s, men who are owned by the owner of the plant and they're working night shifts and overtime and knocking together packing boxes and they eight cents a box <clears throat> so they can somehow come up with two or $300 over a long period of time and get themselves free. Uh, 
One of the most heartening moments I had in the archive was I was able to follow one of these men for six or seven years. His name, believe it or not, is Freeman. Great name for a guy headed in that direction. And uh, literally one of the happiest moments I had in my research is to find Mr. Freeman seven years after the deed of manumission is signed. You can find him in the 1840 census. He's married. He's got two kids. He's leading his own life here in Baltimore. So why would an owner participate in all that? Surely not out of the goodness of their hearts. If you, if you felt guilty or moved by you know, religious motivations about slavery, you might manumit people over time. The Quakers certainly did that. But a lot of these transactions are very commercial. And here's what I have to suggest for you. You might know as an owner that if you turn some guy down on this offer, he does have a certain alternative that is kind of a scary alternative from your point of view. He might run away. And if you're here in Baltimore, it's only about 20-some miles to the Pennsylvania line. He's not legally free when he gets to Pennsylvania. The Constitution assures that. You can go and spend money and find him and bring him back if you can find him and if you can get him back. But his chances of getting away, or at the very least of costing you a lot of money to get him back, are a whole lot better than they are in the Deep South. I think there's a connection there. In other words, you have that proximity to the possibility of escape being more realistic, shall we say, than getting from, I don't know, Georgia to Pennsylvania. And you have a much higher manumission rate. I think the people in slavery are sort of connecting the dots, so to speak, and uh, using, not probably, oh, not probably overtly, but using the fact that the slave owner's got to be worried about this kind of thing to pry that door to freedom open a little bit more. Uh, that whole discussion of manumission as a, an individual avenue out of freedom is, is what the, uh, my, my first book, The Price of Freedom, that Ju Judy kindly mentioned was about. And it was kind of a case study here in Baltimore. What that process does in the long term <clears throat> is something that I think destabilizes and challenges slavery all over this region. Here's what I mean. You have people who are working tobacco in Calvert County, or they're in some kind of, I don't know, wheat, corn, orchard kind of setup somewhere in the eastern shore. And you will see advertisements from the people who own these slaves saying, I want to sell this, this person to an owner in Baltimore. He wants to come to Baltimore so that he can work his way free. Or as one owner very succinctly said, she wants to come to Baltimore to get free. Uh, owners are, some of them anyway, feeling like they need to cater to this kind of sensibility. Uh, they're doing enough of it that you can see from looking at census data this steady growth in the number of free people of color. And if we take the testimony of slaveholders seriously, and probably we should, there's nothing worse for slavery than having a bunch of free black people around. In their own inimitable phrases, the presence of free black people demoralizes slaves. <laughs> and yes, I don't think I need to explain to you what they're, what they're talking about. <clears throat> um, Maryland and Delaware become 
Delaware even more so than Maryland in its little three-county arrangement, become places where slavery is clearly on the wane. Uh, and you can offer all kinds of explanations. There, you, I can give you an economically driven explanation about how certain crops become less profitable and people start trimming their workforces. It's certainly also true that if you own slaves in Maryland, you uh, have the option, if you think you can make it work, of selling those people to a big-time slave dealer who will take them to uh, Savannah or later New Orleans and resell them there. But all of these strategies, all of these economic strategies, they, they rely on and they react to and they get intertwined with what people are doing about, what black people are doing about being caught in slavery. And if the option is there to work your way out, particularly in a city where there's a lot of casual labor where cash can be earned, if the op option or the threat is there to try to escape, uh, that's going to make the manumission option look a little more attractive than it otherwise would be. I won't get the maximum work and profit out of this guy, but if he'll stick around for seven or eight years and work hard in return for my actually setting him free at the end of that time, maybe that's not a bad deal to make from an owner's point of view. Once you go down that path, then we're ready, we're ready, so to speak, for a sort of second set of developments in all this, and, and this is the, the area that I kind of refer to. I'm going to sort of jump down to Roman number three there, taking a stand and building a community where you are. Uh, it was the cherished belief of slaveholders <clears throat> everywhere and in Maryland as much as anywhere else that their slaves needed them, depended on them required their assistance, would not be able to survive without them. I might add the, the uh, African Americans who were in slavery often returned the same sentiments, that they, uh, they knew they were the ones doing most of the hard work, and they, they often suspected that their owners would not be able to get along without them. <coughs> but if you have this, this, as a slaveholder, this fictive belief that these people are incapable of taking care of themselves, it is interesting to note that when people do become free, one of the first things they want to do is get out there and show that they are good Americans, capable of succeeding uh, on just the same terms and with just the same incentives as, as anybody else in the country would have. Uh, I want to be my own boss. I want to have my own work if I can. I want to if I, I want to get to the point, if I can, where I can own land and have a farm, or if I live in a city, own my own house. I want to have my own, my friends and I want to have our own congregation where we can select the minister so that we can worship in the way that we choose. And all of that is happening, and black people are telling folks about it, especially here in Baltimore. That is to say, these are people who are visibly succeeding. They are not, you know, making themselves the, the wealthiest 10% of the, of the state by any means. But they are, they're holding life together. They are finding ways, in some cases, to somehow to get their children educated. And they're making a difference. Just to give you two examples, let's talk about some individuals here, of, of this sort of sense that 
we as a an African American people, we can by just sheer willpower and effort. Now that we're free, kind of force people to recognize that we're worthy members of the community. That's a major theme. I'm going to start with a, a career of a man that uh, he's, he's another Baltimorean, William Watkins. William Watkins is born here in Baltimore in 1800. He's uh, we believe, born free. Uh, his parents had both been slaves who became free before he, crucially, his mother becomes free before he's born, so he's born free. Watkins uh, somehow acquires an education. He may, we're not sure, but he may have attended one of the charity schools that was uh, uh, supported by Quakers interested in uh, philanthropy for recently freed African Americans. And Watkins, by the time he's 20 or so, has decided education is the key to success. That's what black people are going to have to do to make it. He starts up his own school. And he's not just trying to teach, you know, reading, and writing, and arithmetic to people. He wants people, if he can, to stay with him through the, the, the equivalent in those days of high school to age 14 or 15. And by golly, he's going to teach them Latin and Greek before they're done. In other words, this is, he, he's very explicit about this. We know how he felt because he wrote a lot of, he writes for newspapers. He writes for northern anti-slavery newspapers, and he just sort of signs himself a, a colored Baltimorean. So Watkins is doing what? He is living the life of trying to use education for, for uplift. He becomes a sort of open spokesperson for, in the late 1820s, uh, a better life for black people. And, you know, he, he's, he's urging his fellow black people in America to demand their rights as Americans. This guy is now going to go on to make one of the major contributions that show us how this sort of free black life could, could cross certain lines in an unexpected way. In the mid-1820s, a Quaker anti-slavery man named Benjamin Lundy will come to Baltimore to edit a newspaper. Uh, Lundy's newspaper is called The Genius of Universal Emancipation. It's one of the first weekly anti-slavery newspapers in the country. And Lundy wants to edit it in a slave state to make a certain statement about the possibility of changing minds. Watkins becomes a supporter. Uh, some of the colored Baltimorean pieces appear in the genius of universal emancipation. Uh, there's some indication that he becomes, in effect, like a subscription agent, you know, helping sell copies. And Watkins ends up offering uh, living space to one of the uh, people that's helping Lundy out. And that is a, a youngish boy from uh, 24 or so from uh, Massachusetts whose name is William Lloyd Garrison. Garrison, like Lundy, is an advocate of gradually emancipating black people and then colonizing them back to Africa. In Watkins, we know this from, from Garrison's uh, memoirs, Watkins apparently spends many an evening trying to convince both Lundy, but especially the younger Garrison, that this is a stupid idea. You know, that we're born here, man. We're not from Africa. We're not going back to Africa. We've never been there. Nobody in his right mind would want to go to any of the places in Africa you want to send us to. Watkins almost sounds at times, you know, like a, a prototypical white person talking about Africa. He says, there are savages over there. He says, it's hot. There's diseases. You know, he says, why would you want to leave Baltimore? 
Well, the guy he he finally convinces, William Lloyd Garrison, of course, is going to go on to edit The Liberator and be the most prominent abolitionist journalist of the the whole pre-Civil War period. And uh, the first major piece that Garrison publishes uh, of a sort of theoretical nature is called Thoughts on Colonization, in which he explains, using arguments he apparently had, had hammered into him by Watkins, why colonization of black people really is not the right idea. Uh, Watkins and other black Baltimoreans will now make, I'm now into the 1830s, another contribution in that area. Another contribution that is to this idea that maybe we can somehow figure out some way in this country for black and white people to, uh, to live together on whatever terms. Watkins will organize, among, along with a, a whole series of other people in Baltimore and elsewhere, he'll organize two different kinds of opposition to the colonization of black people back to Africa. The scheme, the scheme that's hatched by a bunch of well-meaning, I guess we'll have to call them well-meaning white folks, they include some pretty notable people. Uh, one of the first presidents of the organization is James Monroe, as former president of the United States, that's why that capital in Liberia was called Monrovia. They wanted to tip their hat to Monroe for his support to colonization. Henry Clay is involved. Uh, Supreme Court justices are involved and so forth. But you're going to find people in Maryland. Maryland has the largest free black population in the country as early as 1830. And those people are, uh, so to speak again, demoralizing the slaves. Let's have a big colonization society here in Maryland. The white-led American Colonization Society will be bigger, better organized, and at times with public money, better funded than anywhere else in the country with the possible exception of Virginia. Watkins and a bunch of you know, young black men who don't have that much money will make it their business to go around the state in effect you know, harassing colonization agents. The colonization society will hire people. They usually hire an out-of-work minister or some, some person like that and send this guy around Maryland trying to convince recently freed black people that they'd be better off going to Africa. We'll, we'll help you with expenses. You know, it's, it's going to be peachy there. Uh, you know, there's going to be dancing girls, et cetera, et cetera. And Watkins, some guy like Watkins will show up and have a meeting like the next day after the colonization agent has been there and just sort of say, this is all a pack of lies. Here's what's really going on. You know, <clears throat> um, We know this from the colonization agents writing back to their bosses in Baltimore saying, somebody's got to do something about these guys. They are, they are just really spoiling our plans. Uh, we even have stories of Watkins in one instance and people, his allies in another instance, going on board boats. People are on the boat. They have sold whatever they had. They're on the boat ready to go to Africa and convince them to come back and start over again in the United States. And Watkins' take on this throughout is that we have to do this, we Africans. Uh, he would the, the term that people of his period preferred was Africans or men of color. African Americans is going to sort of come along as a locution a little bit later. We Africans have to do this. Watkins is saying, uh, because if we don't stand up for our rights uh, and, and insist that we get our rights as Americans, they will be denied to us. 
Now, at the level of convincing white people that, yes, yes, black people ought to get the right to vote or something like that, they're going nowhere. There's no success. But if the test is, are you convincing other Africans, other African Americans, whichever locution you prefer, that their future lies in the United States, yeah, these guys really matter, and they're making a big difference. And in that sense, they are staying the course, if you will. And what you're going to see then is somebody like, again, like a Watkins saying, um, I'd like to acquaint people in my neighborhood with a few facts. Here's how many black people in Baltimore own a house. Here's the number of dollars of taxes that we pay. Uh, Here's the number of church congregations we've formed. Did you know there are 26 temperance organizations, you know, non-drinking organizations, voluntary organizations founded by uh, that have African members here in Baltimore. And so the list goes on and on, sort of a visible demonstration that uh, whether you think it's possible or not, you slaveholders or others who listen to them, we're actually getting by in this world. <clears throat> One area where this, these people do succeed is that Maryland uh, in particular will have a, a series of events in the 1840s and again in the late 1850s where slaveholders feel they need somehow to band together to deal with this situation. Uh, probably the most dramatic of these stories uh, comes in the late 1850s. We've gotten all kinds of increased tensions. We've The runaway slave issue has become a big hot-button issue. We've passed a Fugitive Slave Act nationally to deal with it, and there are all sorts of stories of resistance and rescue. And now now we have a a leading Maryland politician, a guy from the Eastern Shore named Curtis Jacobs. And Jacobs, in 1858 and 1859, calls for a statewide convention of slaveholders, and at that convention develops legislation that is then presented by the slaveholders to the Maryland legislature saying, let's tell every free black person in Maryland they have to either leave the state within a year or be re-enslaved. Wow. Uh, I might add, this, this sort of legislation, this idea of just imposing slavery again on free black people, it was a popular idea in some circles in the late 1850s. Two or three southern states actually attempted to pass such laws, Arkansas, for example, South Carolina and Louisiana debated it. So it's an idea that's who's, who's a bad idea whose time has come, I guess you might say. And Jacobs actually succeeds in getting the Maryland legislature to put this idea up to the people of Maryland as a referendum. Wow, we're actually going to vote on this. A few months before the referendum is to occur, we have that dramatic event known as John Brown's Raid. And, of course, that, that certainly inflames a lot of white people's sensibilities. We're now we're on edge, you know, about the fact that we might all be murdered in our beds, et cetera, et cetera. So what are you going to do about that? We know what happened. We know that black ministers and black cart drivers and, this is a good one, black barbers organized themselves every conceivable way that they could, even though they couldn't vote, of course, to defeat this referendum. Black ministers went to white ministers that they were on some kind of terms with and said, you know, you, you know what my congregation is like. You know what your congregation is like. Will you say something in your sermon next Sunday that says we're a peaceful, law-abiding people and it's absurd to 
force us back into slavery. Uh, people who had sort of the kind of, what shall we say, casual but ongoing contact that a delivery man might have, or in particular, barber, raised these points. Uh, I, I like the barber image pretty well. I mean, this guy is shaving you. You, you are, in a certain sense, trusting him in an important way. And he's trying to make a point to you that, don't you think it's a little crazy, you know, to say that we're all going to try to kill you and that we need to be re-enslaved? Uh, the referendum went down to defeat by about 70% to 30% at the height of antagonism and fear about black insurrection and all these other things. <clears throat> these are the kinds of stories that I find powerful. And I don't want to suggest by any means that this is some sort of unbroken record of success here. We do have, if we look at the, the, the political history, let's say, of regulating uh, slaves and free people of color in, Mar in Maryland or Virginia, we have this constant lashing out against free people of color. We're using the law, uh, politicians are using the law to make it tough on these folks. We're saying if you leave the state, for whatever reason, you can't come back. So in other words, think about that. Restricting mobility, does this make it any easier to find work and make a living? Of course not. It makes it tough. Uh, we're saying at times, for example, in the wake of the Nat Turner Rebellion in Virginia in 1831, Marylanders passed a law saying that, uh, in effect, black people have, who are free have to register and define their address and, in effect, be placed under a kind of surveillance uh, on an ongoing basis in an attempt that leans towards urging these people to leave. If you are someone who's convicted of a crime as a free black person, at various times in Annabelle, Maryland, it's possible that your penalty is going to be re-enslavement. Uh, so there's, there's plenty of tough stuff going on, and what I find impressive is this this amazing effort to continue to maintain and build communities in the face of all that. Uh, Curtis Jacobs, the slaveholder who wanted to push for re-enslavement, Jacobs, Jacobs' own words are probably the, some of the best examples we can think of in this, uh, in this area. Um, uh, an acquaintance of mine uh, named Willa Banks, who works at one of the local museums here in Baltimore, has been doing research on Jacobs, and uh, she's come up with some interesting language of his that will be uh, in print, I hope, fairly soon in the Maryland Historical Magazine. But Jacobs is doing things like this. He's saying uh, to voters, presumably, in public speeches, you know, slavery is the natural condition of the Negro. These people who are free are, they're all thieves and lazy and they're living off, you know, the bounty of the land. And he says, besides, a lot of them have houses as good as the white people. <laughs> And now the irony seems to be lost on Jacobs, but he really does combine this in one sentence, those two sentiments. It's, it's there in his published remarks. And it may have been, for some of his hearers, it may have been politically effective. In other words, it's hard to tell what's scarier, you know, the, the, the stereotypical lazy free black man or the guy who actually is doing as well or better than you. But again, again, the long-term story, the slow long-term story is of these people making lives for themselves. And a lot of those voters, a lot of those voters in the referendum in 1860 are writing letters to the editors and saying, 
I'm not going to vote to expel a reliable agricultural workforce. These people have been harvesting my wheat for years, and it would be stupid to expel them. And, and sort of unsaid is it wouldn't be that profitable to re-enslave them because I don't have work for them all year round. I only really need them maybe at harvest time. That's the, the kind of stories that interest me. I've, I've been sort of skipping around here a little bit, but the, the climax, I suppose, and I, I'll try to wrap up and then we will take questions in the next five, ten minutes. The climax to all this, of course, is the Civil War, where we're able to see in a very direct way how I've, I've called it allying with outsiders. At any given moment, if you are, again, a person who is, who's enslaved, at any given moment, you may have a dramatic opportunity to become free uh, by offering up your services as a soldier. And that happens each of three times here in America. That is to say, when the American Revolution comes along, there will be black Marylanders and black Virginians who fight both for the British and for the Americans. Neither the Americans nor the British in the Revolutionary War are avowedly out to end slavery, but they both need extra troops and extra wagon drivers and extra fortification builders and cooks and so forth. And they are willing, both the British and the Americans, to enlist the services of some black people. So the American Revolution becomes an opportunity on a kind of case-by-case basis for a person who's enslaved to, to become free by performing military service. We have, uh, we know that the state of Maryland at one point and the state of Virginia said uh, if a slaveholder will free his slave beforehand uh, on condition of that person serving in the Army, the Continental Army or a Maryland regiment or whatever it might be, the state will validate that activity. The state will authorize that kind of private freeing of somebody for a public purpose. And we have, uh, we have some pretty satisfying stories about uh, black veterans who uh, did some notable things in, uh, in Virginia or in Maryland in, uh, in fighting for the revolution. The same thing, of course, could be true on the other side. Uh, when the Revolutionary War gets underway, the British soon realize, as, uh, <clears throat> as one British captain puts, the question is not whether or not you want to attract slaves to your ranks. The question is, can you prevent them from joining your ranks? In other words, there are going to be hundreds and hundreds of people who are going to seize whatever opportunities come along when the British are active in the Chesapeake to try to join that British fleet. Uh, if, if you can envision in your mind's eye the, uh, the 1777 campaign, General Howe, based in New York, decides to attack Philadelphia and for reasons best known to himself, does not march across New Jersey, but decides to sail his forces down the Atlantic coast up the Chesapeake up to, you know, head of elk and land them there. He's now about the same distance from Philadelphia as he was when he was in New York. You, you tell me <clears throat> why this seemed like a good idea. But what he did do, when that fleet that was taking him up the Chesapeake, and then when that fleet left and went back down the Chesapeake, hundreds and hundreds of black people took their chances. Some of them become significant and successful free people uh, we can trace the lives of some of them, and they end up going everywhere in the world. 
We would have, for example, a man who starts out life in uh, southern Virginia. <clears throat> He's owned by a, a person somewhere in the Norfolk area. He joins the British. He fights for them for six years. He leaves New York with them in 1783, uh, and he and some of his descendants become some of the black, first black Nova Scotians. The British decide to give them a chance, you know, pay them off by giving them some land. And uh, Nova Scotia turns out not to be much of a bargain <laughs> from a certain point of view. It is pretty cold and tree-covered and snowy up there. Uh, maybe if you're an Acadian and you're from Normandy in the first place, it feels like home, but to, to a lot of black people it didn't. Some of these people then go, again, with British sort of mediating of all this, they do go back to Africa. They go to the British ex-slave colony in the 1790s called Sierra Leone, or today called Sierra Leone. One of the guys who's there is a slave from the Chesapeake whose former owner is George Washington. Seventeen of Washington's people ran away from him in 1781 during one last series of naval raids up the Chesapeake. So this big guy becomes free, and he calls himself Harry Washington. He takes Washington's name because it has does have some cachet. Harry Washington ends up 15 year, years later in Sierra Leone, where he and other black people who are in that colony become unhappy with the fact that they're being governed and led, and they see, as they see it, unfairly dominated by their British white abolitionist governors and, and this troop of like white soldiers that are there. Harry Washington leads his own rebellion against this. It doesn't succeed. He's defeated and he's forced eventually to go. He's not killed. He's not captured. He kind of goes off with a few followers and lives in his own little sub-colony. And the British abolitionists write back and they say, these blacks from America are filled with the spirit of rebellion just like the Americans themselves. I like that story. In other words, taking, taking that sense of what it means to be an American and applying it in a different way. Uh, a woman named Cassandra Pibus has written a great book on this subject about <clears throat> this whole diaspora, let's call it, of black people, you know, sort of uh, spreading around the world after the revolution. And she finds them... Uh, in Africa, she finds some of them in Germany. The British had German regiments, right, that helped them fight the war. So if you happen to run away to a German regiment, you might end up going back to Hesse or Brunswick or one of those German states, and you might be the progenitor. Uh, there are people alive today, Afro-Germans, who can trace their roots back to 18th century America. You might even be an Australian. Cassandra Pibus herself is Australian, and she learned something in her research that astonished her, that amongst those people sent out in that first prison fleet, you know, prisoners who were being deported by the British to a, go make Australia into something, a few of them are former slaves who had gone back to England with a British regiment and by one process or another fallen on hard times and ended up being treated as criminals in England and then sent to Australia. So we have this kind of worldwide diaspora coming out of that American Revolution. 20,000 people, Pibus's estimate is who, that was their ticket, if you will, out of slavery and the significant majority of them from the Chesapeake. Something like the same thing would happen 40 years later in 1812. I'll telescope this story. 
The story here involves people, again, who join the British when the British are sailing up the bay to, what, burn Washington, to attack, attack but fail to burn Baltimore. And there were some uh, black veterans on the American side in that combat, in the Navy at least. <clears throat> but again, we have several thousand people who join with the British to try to take their freedom. The British actually made a regiment out of them, the Royal Colonial Marines a mixed black and white regiment. Uh, they trained several hundred ex-slaves for their role in this regiment on uh, Tanger Island, which was uh, for about a year or so under the control of the British fleet when they were in the, uh, in the bay. Tanger Island became a sort of, uh, I don't know, boot camp for these fellows. They participated in the burning of Washington and were noticed in the dispatches of General Ross. The Colonial Marines performed with their customary valor. <clears throat> When the war was over, the British, uh, again, kept their promises to these, uh, these individuals and settled about 4,000 of these soldiers-slash-refugees-slash-former slaves, settled them in uh, Trinidad. And uh, to this day, there are little quarters, neighborhoods, whatever you want to call them, in one portion of Trinidad that are said to be the home of the Americans. Uh, which presumably means, you know, 200 years ago, that's where their, the ancestors of these folks came from. So we have another one of those diaspora stories, and again, a story of black people fighting on both sides. The big difference in the Civil War uh, is that, of course, by that time, the way people understood this whole issue of race and slavery was somewhat different, and the Confederates could never quite bring themselves to have slave soldiers. They could uh, imagine using slave labor to, uh, again, for camp work and fortifications and so forth, but pretty much anybody who wore a uniform and fired a gun was fighting for the Union. And we know that something like 20,000 uh, U.S. colored troops were raised in Delaware, Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia during that war. Uh, Baltimore raised, uh, I think, a total of nine regiments, if I've got that number in my head right. That's, you know, several thousand people, in other words, came out of Black Baltimore <clears throat> in 1863, 4, 5, to help fight the Civil War to a conclusion. So we have those familiar stories that deserve some attention. Uh, I haven't paid much attention here to actual stories of insurrection, uh, and I think they, they, at least in Maryland, deservedly kind of take a back seat to the other kinds of stories I'm telling. But the, for me, the larger pattern here is this long, lived determination to create lives that uh, where you could enjoy some kind of freedom, however partial, that was allowed to you in the 19th century. And this coming to fruition with uh, the end of the Civil War. Maybe we can end with that one big name that I haven't been mentioning at all, Frederick Douglass. Douglass, of course, left here as an escaping slave in the 1830s. He came back to Baltimore for the first time uh, in many, many years to celebrate what? The passage of the 15th Amendment that allowed black people to vote. He was a major player and a huge celebration in Baltimore of that event. Uh, I think it's worth mentioning. Again, it's worth noticing that these horrible, horrible stories of segregation and depriving black people of their rights after the Civil War it does play out somewhat differently, particularly in places like Maryland and Virginia. There was no not a good, good situation by any means, but the sort of ruthless elimination of the political right to vote 
uh, that you would see in Mississippi or Alabama, for example, that's not quite the way things work in Maryland. Uh, black people had established themselves over a longer period uh, and had, however grudgingly, uh, wrung some respect for their ability to lead those lives uh, out of their, their white compatriots. Um, so that's what I have to say, and I would be very happy to take questions. I, I, I seem to have silenced you people somehow. <laughs> I thank you all for turning out. If you're so inclined, Robin is, is ready to uh, offer you a book there, and I'm, I'm ready to sign it. Thanks very much, folks. Thank you.